0: Today's passage is from Philippians 2, 1 through 10. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in prayer. God, we thank you and praise you for the beauty of your word and just your amazing generosity to give it to us. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive the message this morning, that it would sink down deep and take root and that your truth would ring true all through the week. Lord, we praise you for this time that we have together, that we can hear the preaching of your word. In your name, amen.
1: Well, thank you, Janie. I have to say that is the most eloquent and altogether lovely scripture reading I've ever heard in the history of resurrection. (laughs) We're going to have Janie do that every week, you guys. (laughs) Which I'm sure she's excited about the prospect of. Uh, It's my wife, if you don't know. I'm trying to earn some points here. We're in the final week of our uh, series, uh, Hope for Hard Cases, and really it's just been, my hope has been that this has just been a series where we could meditate on the beautiful reality of what salvation means for us. And, uh, you know, writing a series that's super focused on the gospels in some ways is really great as a preacher because it, focused me, it, fo- it makes me focus on keeping the main thing, the plain thing. And that's our salvation, you know, our relationship with the Lord. And In other ways, it's really a challenge because you're tempted to think, oh, I need to come up with something new and novel. For me, I'm sharing this just in confession with you as a fellow saint, it's been such a good season for me to remember that I don't need to make anything new and fancy up, that to be able to plumb the depths and the riches of what the gospel means for you and I is... Something that we can never exhaust. And so it's been a huge blessing for me. In this final week, uh, what I wanted to focus on is one particular aspect of the gospel that we see played out uh, in the life of Jesus. You know, And remember that the incredible reality for us is that God has given you and I salvation. That means that we're freed from this past uh, that's racked with sin and rebellion against God. Uh, That it means that we live in this beautiful present reality that we're no longer slaves to sin. That even if we don't see it or realize it or struggle to believe it, that God is transforming us and bringing us true freedom and restoration. And that we have a glorious future hope that's sure because Jesus made it sure for us. And the thing that I want to consider is that all of that is possible through the humility that Jesus displayed on our behalf, as you heard in the passage. So the main idea I want to consider with you is this, that since Jesus lowered himself for you and I, we are called to lift each other up. Because Jesus humbled himself for us, we're called to lift each other up, and we're free to do that through his power and his spirit. Uh, first part, the humility of Jesus is the only thing that really humbles us. Um, tell you a story about myself. I think I've shared it here before. Uh, when I was a new Christian, I had this experience, uh, where I found myself really, really spiritually prideful. I was super arrogant. I was in that weird stage in seminary, uh, there's a phrase that flies around called cage stage. And that means that you get a a person who knows just enough theology to be a danger to himself and other people. And they fall prey to the temptation that what they know makes them somehow better than other people. And that was me to a T as soon as I started reading the Bible and going to Bible college. And I had an experience where I was just puffed up, full of pride, and uh, really pretty angry. Um, And I was sharing in a uh, gathering with people in a Bible study, and there was this older guy who was a, who was a seasoned Christian who came up to me afterwards, and, and uh, we started talking about what I had shared, and I didn't realize it at, at that time, but he was really trying to gently and graciously correct me, and in passing towards the end of the conversation, he said, you know, Brian, nobody ever hears angry truth. I was like, yeah, whatever, dude, you're lame, next. Uh, but it really just shot this arrow deep into my heart. And it began the season where God really began to help me see just how arrogant and prideful and really insecure underneath that I was as a young man. And you know, I, if you guys know my story, a lot of us in this congregation come from a recovery background. And there's, there's a very important principle that you learn, that all of us learn, because it's biblical. And that's soberly assessing ourselves not according to our own standards or the world's standards, but assessing ourselves in light of what God says about us, uh, both before we were saved by him, but especially afterwards. It's so important to do. But you know, it's not something that we can do on our own. Uh, What I've found with other people, and especially with myself, two things typically happen if I use any other standard other than what God says in his word. Uh, First, I become that young man again, spiritually puffed up, full of pride. You know, I start boasting about myself. If I assess myself on anything other than God, I tend to think I'm killing it on a lot of days. And that I'm probably better than most other people in the room. Uh, some of you may relate to that. Other people, I'm also guilty of this, especially nowadays. You may become the type of person that's just full of self-loathing. And all you see is your deficiencies and your shortcomings and your self Uh, loathing tends to take over your entire understanding of yourself and we become people that are just riddled with insecurity the problem with both of those extremes is that they're the result of us obsessing on ourselves there's no way for us to self-examine ourselves into Christian maturity and especially not something like humility that Paul is making much of in the life of Jesus here you know what I've learned over the years is that insecurity and arrogance are two sides of the same coin, and that coin is pridefulness. They just play out in different ways. Uh, I don't think that there's many other things that will derail our spiritual life and our relationship with the Lord other than pride. I think it can shipwreck us in our lives in ways that very few other things can't. The reality is, is we can't obsess or self-examine our way into true humility. And that, that's one of the big points that Paul's making here when he rehearses the gospel in the second half of this passage. He gives us the answer here. True humility always begins by stop the act of stopping obsessing on ourselves. And it always begins with the act of turning away from ourselves and towards Jesus. Uh, And it's not just a cerebral knowledge, right? I mean, Rob always kind of hammers our own tradition. I guess I do, too, now that I think about it. We always hammer our own tradition because we love doctrine, which is a very healthy thing. We love the ability to understand the gospel correctly, which is a non-negotiable. If we don't understand that, we don't understand anything. But what Paul's talking about here isn't really so much just a head knowledge, but it's really our organic and spiritual connection to Jesus that cultivates genuine humility in our lives. So it's, it's the fact that we see and understand, that we use our mind to understand who Jesus is, to understand his word. It's that we allow the spirit to cultivate a new heart in us, a heart that actually has reverence for and affection for God. It's an organic and holistic worship of Jesus. It's only through doing that, by meditating on, by thinking about, by focusing on Jesus as opposed to ourselves, that we begin to be able to cultivate genuine humility in our lives. You know, in the second part of this passage, in verses six through 11, many scholars call this a hymn to Christ. It's this beautiful spiritual song that Paul pens that focuses on who Jesus is and what he's done on our behalf. And a lot of times scholars go back and forth on some of what these verses mean. In particular, one of the ones that I think most people get thrown off by is in verses six and seven. In verse six, uh, Paul writes that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. And sometimes scholars will say that somehow in some way that we don't fully understand, Jesus set aside his divine attributes or his divine qualities so that he could truly be a human being and fully be a man and to serve us. And you know, that's not what Paul is saying at all here. There's no point, this is a a very important part of how we understand Jesus. There is no point in Jesus's life where he wasn't fully God and didn't possess every attribute that God possesses. And there's also no point in Jesus' life where he wasn't fully and truly man, and didn't live a life as you and I do as human beings. Uh, One of my devotional translations is the New Living Translation, and if you don't read it, let me encourage you to read it. There's times when it offers really helpful insights into passages, and actually in verse seven, I really like the way that it translates This verse, the NLT, says that Jesus gave up his divine privileges, not that he forfeited or went without his divine attributes. Now, when we think about it in that light, that God had all these privileges that only God possesses, but he decided to give them up for the purpose of his mission, it helps us understand what Paul is saying here. Uh, One of my favorite scholars puts it this way. Speaking about Jesus, he says his divine nature was cloaked in the form of a servant. In his human form, he truly and genuinely became one of us. So Jesus was the same in essence as he was before he took on human flesh. Uh, He was no less glorious, no less powerful, no less majestic, had no less authority than he did before he took on human flesh. But what he did do is he gave up the privileges that come along with that for the purpose of carrying out God's will. And you know, uh, this word in Greek that we translate as servant, that's a bit soft. It actually means, it's the same word that we use when we talk about slaves. <laughs> so why am I going on about all this stuff? I, you know, I've racked my head this week trying to think about how you and I could truly appreciate what the life of Jesus is means as a result of what he did. And you know what I came up with yesterday? I just can't. There's no way I could properly communicate the beauty and the depth of Jesus' humility in his human life. It's not just that Jesus was like, well, I'm gonna go save these guys. You know, like you're a parent, and the kids are making a mess in the other room, and they're stuck in the crib or something, so you go in and save them, and then you leave. Jesus was equally God as God the Father is. He held a position of glory and honor and majesty and full authority and he looked into fallen creation and he decided to come down and take on human flesh and not just be a nice guy who lived a good life. That's an example for us. He decided to lower himself to the lowest possible position that God, the creator of the heavens and earth, could do for people that weren't even asking for it. He forfeited the benefit of his glory to submit to the Father's will, to make it known to fallen humanity. And he applied that for our benefit through the sacrifice of his life, his obedience, and ultimately his death. Jesus, as a servant who actually took on the form of a slave, didn't regard the equality that he possessed with God the Father as something that he should keep and use for himself but when he took on human flesh, he set it all aside for you and I. You know, when I think about this, and I, one analogy that always comes to mind when I try to explain this to people who are unfamiliar with this, is it would be like if you and I decided to take on the form of a slug, or an ant, or an amoeba, because we love them so much. I mean, could you imagine that? Just the thought of it's ridiculous in a way, right? I I would never love ants that much. They don't do anything for me. They just sit around and eat the crumbs that I drop on the floor. And God doesn't view us like any of those things. God doesn't think you're a slug, even though sometimes you might tell yourself that. He doesn't think you're an ant. He doesn't think you're an amoeba. But the depths to which God in heaven came to save you and I is an outworking of the humility that he chose to take on. And when we think about the depths, the lengths that he went to, it helps us understand just how far he went. Two parts of this hymn that Paul pens, uh, scholars will sometimes call it the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation. And basically all that means is that here in this passage, we have Paul helping us understand the very depths of what Jesus went to, and the very heights of where he actually deserves to be. So his humiliation is the depths that he went to to create salvation for sinners. His exaltation is where he rightly belongs. And actually, at the end of this passage, we see how God responds to Jesus' life of humility. In the exaltation, what we see is God's response to the life of Jesus, a man who decided that he would live like you and I do that he would undergo the temptation of sin that you and I do, and yet resist it in all the ways that we don't. He would experience all the mundane and excruciatingly painful aspects of living in a fallen world and fallen bodies like you and I do. And then he would go on to experience all the excruciating ways that sin's consequences will bring to a human being in ways that we never could. When you think about the exaltation, if there's any one thing, if you're unfamiliar with this, if there's one thing that I I would love to plant in the back of your mind, it's this. When you think about the crucifixion and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, what I want you to think is that the exaltation, the raising of Jesus and him being brought into heaven is God's response to the question of what is the value in humility, in submission and service. That's God's response. You see, where the world looks at the death of Jesus, his crucifixion, and sees a senseless murder of somebody who was supposedly good, God sees the completion of his will that he sent his son to complete. When he looks at the suffering of his son, the world sees something that is unjust and unthinkable. God sees justice being carried out. When you look at the resurrection, the world sees a miracle that's unbelievable and should be discarded because it's ridiculous. God affirms that everything that Jesus was in his humble state and everything that he did was enough. It was enough to save you and I, and not only just save us, but put us in positions of prominence and honor and blessing in God's economy. bottom line is this, nothing humbles us like the love of Jesus. And the way that we see the love of Jesus played out is in the humble life of him as a man that came to save you and I. The second aspect that I wanna consider is this, that when we meditate on and learn to trust in the humility of Jesus, the life that he lived on our behalf. It turns us into people that are God-centered and others-centered. It turns us into people that are focused on God and centered on others. Uh, you know, one of the central questions in my mind of the Christian faith is this. Uh, it's how are we called to live in light of so great a salvation, how are you and I called to live in a way that reflects the beauty of the gospel? Maybe, maybe you never ask yourself that question, but think about that. If you look at your life on any given day, do you think, like, this is a life that reflects the beauty of Jesus? <laughs> right? It, re- it might reflect a lot of things, but a lot of the days we look at them and we're like, this is not a life that displays the beauty of the gospel. This looks more like a, a train wreck. Paul gives us an answer to that. There's three characteristics that he mentions in the opening verses here that God cultivates in you and I as a response to Jesus' humility on our behalf. He mentions humility, he mentions unity, and he mentions service. Uh, First, humility. In verse 3, he says, "...do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." You know, one of the most helpful definitions of humility that I've ever heard and that I live by is that genuine humility is not thinking less of ourselves, rather it's thinking of ourselves less often. When people say, you know, you should just think of yourself less, you think, you're right, I'm a dirtbag. Reformed people are, we're great at this, you know. Uh, we often are like, yes, there's nothing good in me. I'm a sinner. All my good works are rags. I can't do anything good. Oh, my gosh. We just dwell in that gutter of our own self-condemnation. That's not what genuine humility is. Genuine humility is the act of reflecting on Jesus' humility and how it changes who I am in my life and my future and then understanding that I'm free to think about myself less often. Uh, That means it's not self-loathing like my reform friends love to do. Uh, It also doesn't mean that we blow ourselves up, you know, we're killing it for Jesus. Uh, We're not those people that are like blowing up our Instagram feed like, yeah, I'm killing it for the kingdom, yeah, and really the post is about us, right? It's not about Jesus. I was talking with a buddy of mine the other day who's also a pastor and he started sharing about a conversation he had at our general assembly and he shared this great analogy that another minister shared with him that just struck home for me. And he said, you know, oftentimes when we think about our natures, our old nature and then our new nature that Christ is creating in us and working into our lives, a good way to think about it is like two icebergs. And you know, part of this we considered last week we only see the tip of an iceberg. So when you and I think about our fallen nature, we only see the tip of it. You know, we thought about that last week. It's God's mercy that we actually don't know how bad we still are. <laughs> uh, but there's a whole nother iceberg that we really don't consider very often. And that's when we look and see some good thing in our lives, we only see the tip of what God sees. Now think about it. What does Psalm 8 say about man? It says that he's created just a little bit lower than angels. If you wanna challenge that idea, look to this passage. If you wanna know what God thinks about you, even with all your shortcomings and your imperfections and the sins that you still struggle with, look at what Jesus did in his life on our behalf. The reality is, is we struggle just as much to see how valuable we are to God than when we condemn ourselves for not being good enough to receive God's love and His grace. Godly humility is something uh, that is produced by focusing on Jesus, not on ourselves. And what it produces is a perspective where we're able to live with the right understanding of who God is, of who we are and who other people are. No more, no less. Uh, A growing understanding of Christ's love and his humility that he lived out on our behalf uh, produces a genuine humility that sets us free to see ourselves rightly, to see God's love rightly, and then to view other people rightly. I'll tell you something that I've learned that's really important in my own life, that if you want a genuine measure of what type of humility you have, you can measure it by your genuine interest in other people. Your ability to be genuinely interested in other people, not to make yourself look good, but to genuinely serve them and to love them in the way that God calls us to. Genuine humility, that God produces in us, gives us the ability to serve other people out of a sense of freedom and a sense of identity that we have that's born out of Christ's life and his work, right? Uh, the reason why is, and this has been one of the things that has, um, that has really been a core value in our church, when we're able to see that God is meeting all of our needs, both like the meta needs right forgiveness of sins the hope of eternal life but also even our street level needs that he sees us and he knows us and he loves us and that we're value valued in the kingdom of heaven but also to him as our heavenly father it frees us to really genuinely serve people without selfish motives and to see people as being equally valued and significant in god's eyes and that's because we begin to trust and rest in the fact that God is meeting our needs. Uh, this transforms any relationship. This transforms your relationship with uh, your spouse. You know, I've learned this the hard way, it through my own mistakes. And God bless Janie for putting up with my growing pains. Uh, If I focus on my spouse, inevitably, I always find myself frustrated because I'm not focused on the fact that God is meeting my needs and I'm free to serve her as somebody that God's called me to serve. This changes our relationship with our employers in the world. You don't have to worry about who you are in the workplace or in your career because You are something valued and significant and special to the creator of the heavens and the earth, and that frees you to work in a way that genuinely contributes to the world that you live in for the benefit of others. Here in church, you don't need to show up and kill it for Jesus, because he killed it for you, right? You get to show up here and just be wherever you're at, whoever you are, because Jesus loves you so much that he lived this incredible life of humility and sacrifice, so you could be here That means on the weeks when it's really hard to show up to church, your head and your heart aren't here but you make it, Jesus still loves you. His humility was never like that. When you show up and you're full of pride because you feel like you haven't sinned all week, which is a lie, uh, Jesus still loves you. And he wants you here so he could remind you it's a lot worse than you think it is. Uh, You and I have a position with God as our Father because of the humility that Jesus was willing to practice that is more glorious than we'll ever be able to imagine. And if we spent our lives doing nothing else but meditating on that and growing in our understanding of that, we would be people who glorify God through how we think, what we say, and what we live. But that's not it. The second thing that he mentions is unity. Uh, in verse 3 he says being of the same mind excuse me verse 2 he says being of the same mind having the same love being in full accord and of one mind and you know when he speaks about being of the same mind having one mind he's talking about the mind of Christ he's talking about seeing ourselves and one another the way that Jesus does as we've already been considering and when he talks about having the same love it's not this love that I just produce in myself because I'm such a great and loving and caring guy You know, Janie will always tease me and she'll say, you're like a friendly puppy. You know, you could put me anywhere and I just start talking to people because I'm a genuine people person. I love being around people. That's not it. It's actually nothing like that. When he talks about having the same love, he's talking about the fact that we are people who are meant to be filled with the love of Jesus, the love that he gave so much to offer us as it overflows out of us and goes into our relationships with other people. You know, unity and diversity are uh, concepts that are real buzzwords in the world today, right? Um, And, you know, something that I think about a lot is the fact that what the world says about diversity is not what God says about unity and diversity. And let me be clear. You know, in the culture that we live in, in the time in human history that we live in, focusing on genuine diversity the acceptance of diversity to bring unity and humanity is a really good thing, and it's very much needed, especially in American culture in the 21st century. The tragic flaw with the world's view and the culture's view of things like unity and diversity is simply this, that it's not based in God's design for humanity. Ultimately, it's based in some other standard. When the culture that we live in talks about diversity, inevitably what you'll find is that it's diversity according to somebody's standard. That you can be diverse. We celebrate diversity as long as it's according to what our standards of diversity are. (laughs) Inevitably what it actually is, is an alternative method of achieving uniformity. A great example of this is cancel culture. If you're unfamiliar with cancel culture, it's basically this social paradigm where if you do something that people don't like, they feel justified in canceling you, in ruining your life in some way, shape, or form. When the world speaks about diversity, what it really means is that unity needs to be achieved by uniformity. And if you can't conform to that, then you need to be cut out. and You're canceled. That's not what Paul's talking about when he talks about unity. Uh, You may or may not know this, and if you don't know this, that's actually a poor reflection of us as your pastors. It's actually not on you. But the vision of this church is that we believe that we're called to be a people who live in unity and diversity under the lordship of Christ. What that means is that we recognize that God has created every one of us, every one of you, we recognize and affirm that God's created every one of you uniquely in, in different ways. That means when God drew you to himself, he created you in a special way with your own instincts, with your own passions, with your own perspectives, with your own strengths, even your own weaknesses in a way that fits perfectly into the body of Christ. And that it brings him glory when we do that in unity with other people. Uh, It's kind of like the idea of of a symphony. If you think about a symphony, and I'm not a musician, so if I'm wrong, correct me afterwards. It's kind of like the idea of a symphony. They're all instruments. They're all the same kind of thing. But they all make different noises. But when you bring them together and they work in harmony, all these different noises create this beautiful symphony of sound. And that's a biblical idea of what actual unity and diversity in the body of Christ is designed to look like. That all these things are different, equally valued. No less than, no more than. But they all complement each other with their differences. The key is that they're all unified in the same thing. That's their identity in Jesus and the love that they possess that's given to them by God. Ah... When I think about this, I think that's a very easy thing to say and it's very difficult for us to live out, right? And it's okay to be honest about that. Part of us growing in Christian maturity and growing spiritually and emotionally as people that are being redeemed is to acknowledge that it's difficult for us to accept our differences with one another. I remember there was one time I um, I was in a Bible study. I walked out with my buddy and I just started tearing this Bible teacher up. I mean, I was lighting this dude up. I was character assassinating him like there was no tomorrow uh, because I could not accept the difference in his views that he had than me. And uh, I went on and on, and finally my buddy stopped, and he said, hey, man, you might not agree with him, but you need to remember that Jesus shed his blood for that guy just like he shed it for you. And you know what just destroyed me? I sat there feeling so ashamed about how I had been speaking about somebody that Jesus loves so much in that moment. And it leveled me. It helped me see that I have no right to judge somebody else because of their differences. Uh, Because somebody is different than I am and I struggle to accept it doesn't mean that they're no less valuable or significant or that they belong any less to Christ or his body than I do. Being united by the love of Jesus. And having the same mind towards one another that he has means that you and I simply practice seeing each other the way that God does. When God's love begins to reign in our hearts, it manifests genuine unity that actually celebrates diversity and doesn't see it as a reason to prop ourselves up in pride or to low ourselves in insecurity and self-loathing. It helps us understand that the ground at the foot of the cross is truly level, and that we're all equals in Christ. The third aspect is uh, everyone's favorite. Paul talks about service, living a life of service. That's a joke, by the way. Um, In verse four he says, let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, if you've had an opportunity to read the Gospel accounts, if there's anything that shines through it's that one of the central ethics of the kingdom of heaven and one of the central teachings of jesus is that it's always better to serve than to be served right if if there was a headline about the life of christ we could make that one of them uh and furthermore constantly especially in the new testament you see that god the people that god honors and blesses aren't the people that are busy propping themselves up It's the people that see that the thing that is of greatest value in life is resting in who we are because that's who God says we are and focusing on serving one another to the glory of God. Um, An understanding of genuine love for God and others always manifests itself in service. There's just no way around it, you guys. It's it's a Christian oxymoron to say I understand and receive the love of God but not to serve. Now before that binds your conscience and you set out like condemning yourself for all the ways that you're not serving in your life, let let me clear that up for you. Uh, Just in the same way that we talk about genuine unity happening in diversity, service to God and one another happens in diverse ways. I remember I had a conversation in the side chapel. It was uh, with Matt. We had a mutual friend, and, uh, and Matt was talking about how he was feeling guilty about not serving more and kind of just getting down on himself. And our mutual friend said the sweetest thing that has always stuck with me. He said, hey, the fact that you're willing to go through everything that you go through, all the challenges in your life, and that you show up every Sunday is a genuine act of service that God is happy with. And I was like, dang, man, I should be saying that. I'm the guy that's I should be saying that to people. <laughs> and it's true. Your presence here is not only something that glorifies God, but it's a gift to every one of us that are here with you. Uh, it also means that we get to use the gifts and the talents that God's given us in a way that really brings us the satisfaction and the fulfillment that we're actually yearning for when we try and live pridefully and serve ourselves. You know, one of the most uh, horrible distortions that I find that creeps into the church is a, is a distorted view of love and service. And, you know, there's this worldly idea that uh, says that in order to genuinely love other people, you first have to love yourself, <laughs> right? If there's anything that I know every one of us in this room knows how to do, it's how to love ourselves a little too much, uh, that in turn becomes a reason that people think, well, you know, I don't know how to love and serve myself the way that I think God wants me to, so I really don't have any bandwidth in my life to serve anybody else. You know, the irony is, is that it's through trusting that God's love is enough that you and I actually are free to engage in serving one another. And when we even practice that in the most simplest of ways, whether it's being a missionary that goes to all corners of the planet, or being a person that goes through the real challenge of getting to service every Sunday, you are serving God and other people. And God cultivates a sense of fulfillment and satisfaction in a way that nothing in this world can give us. Picture this, think about Jesus, a man who practiced perfect humility, if at some point he decided this is just too much, I really love you guys, but this is just getting way too intense. I'm going to go back to heaven and think about, you know, how I can help you some other way. It's a ridiculous notion, right? And look, I'm not saying that we know how to love each other and serve each other like Jesus does because we don't. But the fact is, is that we're called to mirror and to image Jesus in how we use our gifts and our talents to serve one another and to love each other well. As I said earlier when I was considering the the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus, Jesus truly had every right to exercise his authority. He had every heavenly privilege that only God possesses. And he would be justified in exercising them in his life and he chose not to. Instead he chose to serve you and I. You and I are called to consider in what ways that we cling to these misguided notions, whether it's our insecurities or uh, our pride, and to think about those things and to consider how they limit our ability to be present and to serve God and serve one another. Maybe you're like me, the first thing you think is I'm not good enough, I don't know how to do this, people are gonna reject me. It's full of self-loathing and insecurity. Maybe you look at your life and you think, I got too much going on. I don't have time to serve God and serve other people. And so you just conclude, look, I'm doing enough. When really, God's giving you an opportunity to stretch yourself out to serve him. Maybe you think that you're too good to be serving. You know, a lot of us fall for that trap. Maybe you think you're too good to hand out worship guides in the lobby. I did that for years. Uh, I was totally guilty of that. Maybe God's trying to level your pride and say that you are actually the exact person that he wants to be the face of the church to greet somebody with graciousness, friendship, and fellowship when they come into a church. We all have all these things that we think are good reasons we shouldn't serve God and serve others. The reality is is that we've been served in ways that we could never repay. And so when we think about the love of Christ in our lives, we don't think about it on a give and take basis. We think about it in the way that we thought about our gospel passage. If you are somebody who possesses every good thing that God could give a sinner, and you do, and that God has promised that He will never take those things back for us, that they're truly ours for all of eternity, and He has, what act of service could we do that would be unreasonable? What could we do that would be too much? There's nothing. You see, genuine service isn't something we do to prove that we're good enough or to show that we're better than. It's simply an expression of the gratitude for the growing awareness of what we have, what's been given to us, what we will always possess. And that's the result of the humility of Christ in his life, in his death, and his resurrection. You guys, we have the greatest privilege in the world. You know, when we think about these things and I think about me and how I fall short, it can be super overwhelming to think that I'm called to live a life where I'm unified with people that I struggle with. That I'm called to practice humility when I'm really not all that humble of a person. (laughs) But I'm called to live a life of service. And it seems to stress me out because I forget that this is something that God has promised. He will give me the power to do give me the ability to do, and then he will reward me for doing it. Early on, I had an older brother in the faith share with me. He said, man, total street dude, you know, not a scholar, but his theology was spot on boy. And he said, you know, man, I just think Christianity is the best deal in town. I just can't imagine any other religion that says, God acknowledges that you can't do something. And then he does it for you. And then he gives you the ability that you don't have to do what he calls you to do. And then he turns around and blesses you for doing what he gave you the ability to do in the first place. If that's not a good deal, (laughs) I don't know what is. So for you and I, the question remains, how do we live lives that glorify a savior that humbled himself so much for us? Just in summary, we learn to practice humility in our lives in small and big ways. That means that we share with people that it's only the love of God and his humility that makes us humble. We live lives of service. We help other people see that we serve, not because we're all that great at the end of the day, but because we belong to a God who served us first. And we live lives of unity. What we do when we do that is that we give people a glimpse of what the kingdom of heaven is actually like. We offer people a true picture of redeemed humanity, a humanity that's unified and diverse and resembles the image of the God who made us, amen? Let's pray and thank God for this. Father, we thank you that, uh, we thank you that you are a God who is so unlike us in every one of the ways that we've considered We pray that you are a God who shows us what genuine humility is in the life of your son. We thank you that you are a God who sees us for what we are and neither disregards us nor props us based on our own failing human efforts and fallen nature, but you see us as perfectly loved and valued and significant in your son. We thank you that you're a God who calls us to this wonderful life, Lord, with all of its challenges, all of its trials, that through that you remind us that it's through the suffering of your son and his victory that we are called to live lives that are filled with expressions of gratitude and that they look like a unity of spirit and mind with one another and that they look like a life of service seeking the welfare of each other for their good and your glory and that they look like lives of humility where we point people towards Jesus instead of ourselves. That's your son's name that we pray all these things. Amen.